You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Well, thank you, Susan, for leading that, putting that together. Thank you, young people, for spending all that time preparing that. And uh, thank you for the wonderful message that that song shares with us, uh, especially today. Uh, JC, I have to tell you, I'm really tempted to say, please turn to Matthew chapter 28, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Please turn to Job chapter 13. I know that's non-traditional. I know uh, Easter out of Job, but uh, I think we can get there. And this is Resurrection Sunday, Easter, as some call it. Let's begin by acknowledging that. And we've already been through this drill once if you were at the sunrise service, but let's do it again. Speaking about Jesus, I say He is risen. He is risen Absolutely. And we state that very matter-of-factly. And I'm glad that we do. Our very presence here this morning is evidence that we are convinced that Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead. And I'll never do this, but I'll do it now. Amen? Amen. Guys, we're getting just a little bit of ringing. Okay. Now, I'm sure you know that not everyone accepts this statement quite so readily. In Jesus' day, there was a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead for anyone. Back in 2013, there was a Harris poll taken that indicated that 35% of adult Americans did not believe that Christ rose from the dead. More recently, a survey taken in February of this year in Great Britain says that 50% of British adults and 23% of British Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even clear back in 2000, according to the Barna Research Group, 30% of Americans who described themselves as born-again Christians did not believe that Jesus came back to physical life after he was crucified. I wish I could say I was making these numbers up, but I'm not. The resurrection. Now, whether we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection of those who follow him, it's obviously a question in the minds of many people. Let me affirm again about Jesus Christ. He is risen. risen But what about you? And what about me? What will happen to us when we die? Probably many of you have heard of Ravi Zacharias. He's a popular teacher and speaker in Christian circles. He describes himself as an apologist or defender of the Christian faith. I think he does a pretty good job of it. Ravi Zacharias says that there are four fundamental questions that each of us will ask at some point in order to make sense out of our lives. There's the question of origin. Where do we come from? How did we come into being? The question of meaning. Why are we here? What is the purpose and meaning of our lives? There's the question of morality. What's right and what's wrong? And how do we determine which is which? And then there's the question of destiny. Where are we going? What happens to a person after he or she dies? And as I look at those questions, it seems to me, this is just my opinion, how I've analyzed this, but it seems to me that the last one is most crucial. 
Think about it this way. If, as some suggest, we simply cease to exist when we die, then the other three questions are only temporary in significance. Why are we here? Well, do your best to figure it out, but after you're dead, it really doesn't matter. What's right, what's right and what's wrong? That sounds pretty important. But if you cease to exist when you die, then after you're dead, it really doesn't matter. What about the assertion of universalism? I'm sorry, losing my place here. What about where we come from? A lot of opinions about that. You can believe what you want, though, if after you're dead it doesn't matter. Think about this. What about the assertion of universalism? That everyone will eventually end up in heaven. That's appealing, very popular. If that's so, then these other three questions, while important in understanding and fulfilling God's will for us in this life, ultimately they don't matter after we die because the answers did nothing to influence our eternal outcome. We're going there anyway. What we do between here and there doesn't matter. What if we believed the other way around? What if we believed that everyone went to hell after they died? I don't believe that. I don't think you believe that. But what if we did? Again, the answers to the other three questions ultimately don't matter if they don't influence our eternal outcome. That's what makes me say this last one is different. If there are different eternal outcomes possible for you and me, and if those outcomes are determined by, or influenced by how we answer the other three questions, then I would say that the answer to what happens to us after we die becomes the fundamental question. And in Job chapters 13 and 14, as Job cries out to God with a number of questions, he raises that issue. At least I think he does. We're going to look at four of the questions that Job uh, brings up in the last part of chapter 13 and chapter 14 in Job. And in my opinion, taken all together, they make up the fundamental question of what happens to us after we die. Now Job had a very different perspective on his life and what was to come perhaps than we do today. So on this Resurrection Sunday, I'd like to let Job ask the questions and then try to answer them from our current perspective in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's start in Job chapter 13. We're just going to read a few of these verses out of these two chapters. Job chapter 13, first of all, verse 23. Job says, How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. And as Job protests what he believes is God's unfair treatment of him, Job asks God for a list of his iniquities, sins, and rebellion, three different words he uses there for sin, that warrant the suffering Job is experiencing. Now, Job, Job's understanding of how life works seems to be similar to that of his friends. If your sins aren't very many, and if they aren't very bad, then you shouldn't have to suffer very much. But for a different perspective on sin and guilt, we could appeal to James chapter 2, verse 10. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Job lived before God gave the Mosaic Law, but even before Moses, the number of sins it took to achieve condemnation from God was the same. One. God described Job as a blameless, 
upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. But that doesn't mean that Job was completely without sin in his entire life. And we know that the immediate cause of Job's suffering wasn't some sin he had committed. But in absolute terms, Job is like everyone else, guilty and condemned because of sin. If you look at verse 26 of Job 13, Job even allows for the possibility that it was the sins of his distant past that have finally caught up with him now. He says in Job 13, 26, to God, for you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Now you can call them youthful indiscretions. You can call it sowing your wild oats. But even the sins, forgive me young people for saying it this way, even the sins of our judgment impaired youth, all right, are sufficient to condemn us before God. I've heard adults excuse and even condone sinful behavior by young people saying, kids will be kids. Just dismissive of it, like it doesn't matter. Young people, let me caution you. Don't let the low expectations of some adults lead you to believe that sinful conduct is somehow acceptable or excusable. It isn't. So then in Job 13, 24... We hear Job express his confusion as he believes God is treating him as an enemy. He says that. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Job considers himself to be a friend to God. He thinks he deserves better treatment than he is currently receiving. But the state of the sinner is exactly as Job perceived his situation. The sinner is the enemy of God. As rendered in the New International Version, Colossians 1.21 says... Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's a thought that's echoed in Romans chapter 5 verse 10. Job was confused about his suffering because he didn't believe he was currently sinning greatly against God. And though his suffering was not God's punishment for his sin, past and present, if God had punished Job thoroughly for all of his sins, what his sins deserved, he would not have been alive to complain. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, and Job, for all of his current righteousness and blamelessness, had at least one sin to his credit, and one sin is all it takes to deserve death. Let's go to chapter 14. Verses 1 through 4 of Job. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Here's the question. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? Job's answer, no one. Job described mankind as being short-lived and full of turmoil. And in saying that God brings man into judgment, Job declares man's uncleanness in God's eyes. About a thousand years later, if you look at Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, about a thousand years later, David would write these words, Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
And then later, also David, I believe, from Psalm 143, verse 2. For in your sight, speaking to God, for in your sight, no man living is righteous. The problem of sin is universal. For all those who have reached the age, or we might say the state, of accountability. In the days before the flood, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God evaluated mankind like this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty thorough. Even after the flood, as a general description of mankind, God said in Genesis 8.21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Romans 3.23, perhaps more to the point. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man is unclean. Isaiah 64.6 expands on that, saying, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Whatever attempts at good deeds or righteousness man might make on his own, they are no more than filthy rags in God's sight. And we might say, well, no problem, I'll purify myself somehow, and then I'll be clean again in God's sight. And I would ask, well, what would you do? What would you do to be pure in God's sight? Is there some sort of sacrificial gift you can make to cleanse you from your sin? No. Is there some amount of good or heroic deeds you could do in order for your sin to be pardoned? No. If you live a perfect life from now on, and along the way you accumulate more righteous acts than you accumulate sins in your life, would you be clean in God's eyes? answer is no. You and I are powerless to cleanse ourselves from sin. So then we have to ask another question. In Job 14.4, did Job mean that even God could not cleanse or purify the sinner? Now, I don't know what was in Job's mind, but I can address the, the issue. Man can't cleanse himself, but is God able to cleanse him? And the answer, thankfully, blessedly, is a resounding yes. God can. Consider Isaiah 1.18, in which God says, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. There is a cleansing from sin available that is beyond the reach of mankind on his own. And there are many references in Isaiah that anticipate the means of that cleansing why we're here today. Perhaps none are so beautiful and terrible at the same time as Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. In anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, Isaiah writes almost, what, 700 years before the fact. But in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, the one we know as Jesus the Christ, Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Romans 7.24 
The Apostle Paul expressed despair over man's inability to cleanse himself, saying, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And if Paul had stopped there, it would have been a hopeless statement indeed, but he doesn't. Instead, he expresses his joy that though man cannot cleanse himself, God can. Reading then from Romans 7.25-8.3, through Paul said these things. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do... Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. To answer Job's question, who can make the clean out of the unclean? God. God can make the clean out of the unclean. Go to Job 14.7. Job 14, 7, down through verse 12. For there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea, and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake, nor be aroused out of his sleep. And in Job 14, verses 7 through 9, Job talks about the seeming ability of a tree to die and then come back to life. Probably many of us have seen this or something like it. Okay? you got... A dead stump there with some green shoots coming up, up around the edge. How many of you have ever seen anything like that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we had a bush behind our house. We have, I should say, a bush behind our house. And it grows as a bundle of individual stalks. Many years ago, for some reason, I don't remember why, I decided I wanted to get rid of it. So I got my chainsaw out, cut through every one of those stalks down as low to the ground as I could. I hauled away the branches and figured my job was done until the following spring came. And there were new shoots growing from what looked like dead wood. And that bush came back even thicker and fuller than it had been before I cut it down. I I tried again, but it didn't take. Anyway, we still have that bush. Job witnessed something like that. And it made him consider what happens to human beings when they die. Trees do this. Could man do that? Or is it more like what we find in verses 11 and 12? As if supplying his own counterpoint to the tree stump illustration. In verses 11 and 12 of Job 14, Job talks about water evaporating from the sea and disappearing into the atmosphere. He also talks about a river that flows, but because of evaporation and being absorbed into the ground, the river disappears. And Job seems torn between these two possibilities. Is it possible that there is some kind of life after death? Or is death the end and man ceases to exist when he dies? And so verse 10 asks the question, Man expires and where is he? Where does man go when he dies? Well, what do we know about that? We could spend hours 
literally, developing the concepts and appealing to the scriptural authorities about what happens to man after he dies. I don't intend to spend hours this morning. There's a way, I think, of abbreviating that process. And it means we need to consider Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And in Luke 16, 19 through 31, we find Jesus giving an account about two people, a rich man who is never named, and a beggar named Lazarus, not to be confused with Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Different Lazarus. Now, while it is generally accepted to be a parable and not an actual uh, account of two real people, like all of Jesus' parables, the details reflect reality according to Jesus. And I'm going to accept that reality, because if anybody knows about reality, it's going to be Jesus, right? So, as an example, in the parable of the prodigal son, all the characters and places and situations are depicted as representative of real people, real places, and real situations. Did that story ever literally happen just like that? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe even probably not. I don't know. But it could have. That's the thing. So in the parable in Luke 16, it would be out of character for Jesus to invent an imaginary environment for the people in the parable. So we see the beggar, Lazarus, dying and being carried to what is called Abraham's bosom, which is probably the equivalent of paradise. Now, we've heard about paradise in conjunction with the crucifixion story, right? One of the thieves on the other crosses tried to defend Jesus, stick up for him. What Jesus tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise, right? Okay, so probably the equivalent of that. Then the rich man in in this parable in Luke 16 was sent to Hades. Some translations render that hell, but it's more likely to be an intermediate place of existence for those who are not under God's saving grace when they die. While paradise is an intermediate place of existence for those who are under God's saving grace when they die. We're answering the question, where do we go when we die, right? Well, these answers. Both places, Hades and paradise, are places of spiritual existence where the spirits of the dead await the return of Christ, at which time their spirits will be given their resurrection bodies and then each one will advance to his eternal dwelling place, either heaven or hell. Jesus demonstrated the separation of the spirit and body at his own death when he said on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then immediately he died as shown by his promise to the other man on the cross, Jesus was not in some sort of suspended state during the time his body was in the tomb, but his spirit was in another place, in paradise, which is a place of both blessing and awareness, even as the other man on the cross would know that he was with Jesus in that place. Otherwise, what's the point of that promise, if the man never knew? So that's four places that a person can be after he dies. Before Christ's return, where we are now, a person's spirit can be found in Hades or in paradise. And after Christ returns, a person, together with their resurrected and or transformed body, will go either to heaven or to hell. But there's one more question that Job asks that ties all that together, and it's found in Job chapter 14, verse 14. 
If a man dies, will he live again? Job's ahead of his time, he asked me. If a man dies, will he live again? And so now we come to the question anticipated by the introduction to today's message. As we were talking about those who believe in Christ's resurrection, uh, I don't know what the numbers are among those that would describe themselves as born-again Christians. I tried to find those that believe in their own future resurrection. I couldn't find that percentage anywhere. I mean, I didn't look hard enough, but I looked. If a man dies, will he live again? You could say it this way. Is there such a thing as resurrection? Is there such a thing as rising from the dead? Now, in the introduction, I mentioned the Sadducees, first century group, who did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians... He addressed the fact that there were some, apparently in Corinth, who were teaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. And that makes me wonder, well, is it possible that the Sadducees had some kind of influence over the Corinthian Christians in this matter? And I'd have to say maybe, but I don't think so. Or at least I think it's doubtful. More likely, in my opinion, this was a holdover from their former religious practices pertaining to idolatry. Hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and that's it. We don't care, right? Whatever the case, I don't know where the influence came from, but whatever the case, some were saying in Corinth that there was no resurrection from the dead. You can look it up in 1 Corinthians 15, 12. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, well, that presents a problem for Christians of any place and every time because the validity of eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ depends on the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, that if the dead are not raised, if we accept that point of view, well, you're not going to be raised from the dead. If the dead are not raised, if nobody's, okay. If, if you and I cannot be raised from the dead, he says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 15, then not even Christ has been raised. He goes on in verse 17 of that chapter to say that if Christ has not been raised, then Christian faith is worthless. All who have trusted in Christ for salvation are not saved. They're still dead in their sins. And again, if we left it there, how hopeless that would be. How terrible that would be. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He goes on in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul knows that Christ has been raised. How did Paul know that? First-hand experience. Paul had a conversation with Jesus when he was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Paul says Jesus appeared to him. Paul was an eyewitness to the truth and reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no question in Paul's mind about whether or not Jesus has risen. He knew from firsthand experience. And so the answer to Job's question, the answer to Job's question, if a man dies, will he live again? Definite yes. At least some of those who die will rise from the dead. But let's look further. Is it just those who will be saved who will rise? John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29 says, no. It is not just those who will be saved who will rise from the dead. In those verses, John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus says, An hour is coming... 
in which all who are in the tomb will hear his voice, talking about his own voice, will hear his voice and will come forth. All who are in the tomb, he said. All of the dead will be raised. And we understand that hour to be the time of Christ's return. Acts 24, 15 affirms this, saying, There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. The question then becomes, raised to what? Are we back to the universalist position that everyone will go to heaven? Not at all. Let me read John 5, 28 and 29 again, this time with the rest of verse 29. Jesus says, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now those who did the good deeds refers to those who are covered by God's saving grace by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ. While those who did the evil deeds refers to those who did not come under the saving, redeeming work that Christ accomplished on the cross that we remember today and this weekend. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8 describe these two eternal destinations clearly. I think it's worth a, another look. We looked at these when we studied Revelation, but let's look at them again. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. As John the Apostle writes what he's seen in his vision, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Listen to verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And in those seven verses, we see the description of the eternal dwelling for those who have come under God's saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 8. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. And you can just categorize them as those who are not under God's saving grace. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The question is, if a man dies, will he live again? Yes. And the other possibility is, if a man dies, he will die again. And what will your eternity be like? Will you rise to eternal life in heaven with God or to eternal death in hell? And so the question, the question of origin is important. It matters that we understand that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that he created the earth, the skies, the seas, and all that is in them, including human beings. 
That matters. That's important. The question of purpose is important. It matters that we exist for God's pleasure, for God's fellowship, and to exist to the praise of the glory of His grace. As Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, In God we live and move and have our being. Our purpose for living is found in and fulfilled by God. And that's important. The question of morality is important. It matters that we determine what is right and what is wrong. It matters that we understand the correct basis for that determination. The very nature, character, and essence of God define what is right and good. Having been created in His image, which is part of the question of origin, we ought to be concerned with conforming to our design, which means knowing and embracing who God is. We demonstrate that knowledge and acceptance by allowing into our lives those things which are right and good. And the question of destiny is important. And I, again, believe that it is the answer to this question that gives even greater significance to the answers to the other three questions. When we die, our spirits may go either to paradise, a place of blessing that anticipates heaven, or Hades, a place of torment that anticipates hell. When Christ returns, the only people that will not rise from the dead are those who have not died. All others will rise, and all people will receive a resurrection body suitable for their eternal dwelling place. The thing that will make the difference between those who go to hell and those who go to heaven is whether they are covered by the saving grace of God that is given to those who truly believe in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of mankind. Romans 10.9 says that believing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is necessary to receiving God's saving grace. And doesn't that trouble you then, given the things we read at the beginning about how many Christians don't believe that? Christians don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Romans 10.9 says that that's part of what's necessary in order to receive God's saving grace. And that brings us back to the fact that today we are observing Resurrection Sunday. And I know, most of you here, right? Most of you here are already among those who truly believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so, because of that, either you've already received salvation through faith in Christ, or you are closer to receiving salvation than those who do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so for those of you who are not yet Christians, let me say this. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus and all that it implies means that you probably accept that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Now when you process that statement, hopefully you will conclude that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah and Savior. And if you recognize that he died for your sin, hopefully you also recognize that your sin is something that separates you from God. And that now if you want to have a good relationship with him, a right relationship with him, you have to now change in your, in your mind and your intent 
You have to be determined to live God's way instead of living sinfully or living for yourself. And that's called repentance. Romans 10.9 also says that those who want to receive salvation need to confess verbally that Jesus is Lord. In Acts 2.38, 1 Peter 3.21, Galatians 3.27, along with numerous other passages, all, all say... We need to be baptized into Christ, clothing ourselves with Christ, receiving forgiveness from our sins, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. And so I'd ask you, would you receive the salvation that God offers you today? Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you could receive that salvation and so that you could Experience your own resurrection in a way that brings hope and will bring joy and peace. So if you will, if that's what you want, if you want to give your life to Christ this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.